T-minus 10, 9, ignition sequence starts. Coming to you from a small undisclosed outpost somewhere in Radioland, it's Because I Said So. Parenting advice with love and leadership from the nation's leading parenting expert, syndicated columnist, author, conference speaker, and the only psychologist to point out that psychology has caused more problems than it has solved for American parents. John Rosemond. People like this are a menace to decent society. Call in now about anything from toddlers to teens, even your 20-something toddlers who refuse to stop sucking on the pacifier of your standard of living. Let's not talk about it in front of the boy. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. From American Family Radio Network, here's your host, John Rosemond. Hi there, and welcome to Because I Said So, a parenting radio show that approaches the relationship between parents and their children from a biblical point of view. I'm a psychologist, but you won't hear me talking psychology, I guarantee you. I'm John Rosemond, and uh, welcome you to the show. We're going to be taking your calls in a few minutes at 404 419 6499. That's 404-419-6499. But first, uh, I wanted to share a really cool story with you. It's a story about how quickly parents, if they are determined enough, and that certainly is the operative condition, can make significant change in their parenting circumstances um, uh, I mean, in, in a very short period of time. And um, the mother who told me this story last week has given me complete unfettered permission to share it. I've changed the details only slightly to conceal people's actual identities. The family in question consists of two twin boys, age nine, and a 12-year-old girl. Mom who was telling me the story, called herself a too-big-to-fail mom, and she did it uh, laughing. She said that uh, she had, up until hearing me talk, uh, she came to a seminar of mine that I did in eastern Tennessee at a resort, a wonderful place, and there were about 20 people who signed up for the full two days of this thing, and, and this mom was one of them. And she said that she had, up until that point, just centered her very existence around her kids, thus a too-big-to-fail mom. I love that expression. She was a mom who, and this is, I think, you know, there are many, many mothers in our audience who can relate to the too-big-to-fail mom idea. She was a mom who felt she had to do everything for her children, everything, soup to nuts. She had to solve all their problems, pay attention to them constantly, drive them to as many developmentally enriching after-school activities as she possibly could, et cetera, et cetera. Whatever they wanted or she thought they needed, most of which they did not need at all, she made sure they got. Um Dad travels a good deal, and early on, Mom began allowing the kids to sleep with her when Dad was gone uh, on the road. Within a short time, as usually happens, the kids were sleeping in the parents' bed when Dad was home. 
Well, since there were three children and the bed wasn't big enough for five people, the kids decided to take turns sleeping in mom and dad's bed. So two of them would crawl into bed with mom and dad and one would sleep on the sofa in their bedroom. Anyway, mom and dad came to this seminar of mine, Eastern Tennessee, two days. They didn't feel that they had any particular problems. They didn't see the sleeping arrangement as a problem. They simply came because they thought it might be interesting. And at the end of the first day, they reassessed and decided that, yes, they did have some problems after all. The kids were well-behaved, obedient, didn't throw tantrums, did well in school. But the parents realized there was this serious boundaries issue festering in the family. And I talked a lot about how there needs to be a boundary in the parent-child relationship. And one of the reasons for that is for respect and the children's autonomy. There's a lot of reasons for that. Now, many of you, and especially those of you who followed my newspaper column for a while or read some of my books, you know that I do not approve of kids being in mom and dad's bed. I mean, occasionally, if the child's running a 103-degree fever or something like that, you want to have him close all night so you can monitor him fine. But healthy kids should not be in mom and dad's bed uh, at all. The parent's bed is what I call boundary number one. And if that boundary is not enforced, the parents are going to pay the devil establishing any other boundary and so mom and dad decided to put an end to it. And in one night, one night, mind you, they did. No transitional period here to help the children adjust or any other such nonsense. One night was all it took. After dinner, and this was the night of day one of my seminar, the kids were there with them participating in the children's program that this resort runs. They sat the kids down and told them, you're not sleeping in our room or bed anymore. You have your own beds. Actually, I think the parents had driven to the seminar. Their house was close by this resort. They said, you're not sleeping in our room or bed anymore. You have your own beds. That's where you're sleeping. And don't come into our room tonight because if you do, we're going to send you back out or if need be, drag you back out. One of the boys, one of the twins, eight years old, asked mom and dad, are you going to at least leave your door open? To which mom, this formerly too-big-to-fail mom, said, yeah, we'll leave the door open, but if you so much stick as stick a foot across the threshold of our bedroom door, we are going to kick you out rather unceremoniously and lock our door for the rest of the night. And guess what? That night, the kids went to their own beds, which presumably hadn't been slept in for a long time, fell asleep, woke up the next morning in their own beds, and were happy kids. They weren't traumatized. Ain't that great? I mean, it's great for the parents. They have a marriage again, and it's great for the kids. They have their own lives back. The kids aren't members of the wedding any longer. The marriage is no longer a fivesome. It's a twosome, as God intended it to be. And if you want proof of that, go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. They shall become one flesh, and they is two people, not five. This is a story about what happens when parents decide to put their feet down in unison, when parents get on the same page, take action. Under those circumstances, it does not take long for the action in question to produce the proper reaction. How has this family bed happened? 
in such a short period of time? That's the question. My wife and I, uh, we never slept with our parents. We did not know anyone our age who slept with their parents. Uh, We do not know anybody our age who allowed their children to sleep with them, and yet so many of the children of people in our generation are letting their children sleep with them. This happened because of psychologists, once again, attachment parenting propaganda. In this case, the propaganda that comes from people with impressive capital letters after their names say that children are going to bond better, whatever that means, if uh, children sleep with them. So all over the United States, moms who were too big to fail and dads who went along with it usually just began sleeping with their kids. And something that I would have thought as a kid was just the weirdest thing in the whole world has become uh, popular. And that's off the top of my head. I'm John Roseman. This is Because I Said So a parenting radio show that approaches the relationship between parents and their children from a biblical point of view. We're on American Family Radio Network. My thanks to them for giving me the privilege of doing the show. When we come back, your calls at 404-419-6499. 404-419-6499. Back in a minute. Welcome back. The show is called Because I Said So. I'm your host, family psychologist. Don't be fooled by the title, John Roseman. The number, if you'd like to be on the show, is 404-419-6499. Again, I'm John Roseman, and we've got some callers on the line. Let's begin with Allie from Alberta, Canada. Hello, Allie, and how can I help you? Hi. Um, I have a three-year-old, and I've been reading your books for a while, and it's been about six months we've been doing the the ticket method, but I've modified it with happy faces. And at first, I thought it was working. He had five happy faces, and when he broke a rule... A happy face would get taken away when he ran out of happy faces. His punishment was to be in his room for the rest of the day, and I removed all the toys from his room. And I'm not sure if I just have the most brilliant three-year-old in the world, but it's gotten to the point where now he'll break the rule on purpose and just say, or if I ask him to do something like clean up your toys... He'll say, how about you clean them up, and I'll go to my room for the rest of the day. And he does it. And he'll even wait for me to leave the room and then break four or five rules. And then when I come back in, it's like nothing happened. Well, he is brilliant. I'll give him that. Okay, (laughs) good. Let's talk about the ticket method, because I'm certain that there are listeners out there who are scratching their heads and wondering, what is the ticket method? If uh, I'll explain it, but first I want to say, if you want a a real fleshed-out explanation 
of the ticket method, you would pick up my book, The Well-Behaved Child, The Well-Behaved Child, published by Thomas Nelson. And um, I've got an entire, uh, virtually a chapter in there. It's really a section of a chapter, but in which I discuss the ticket method. And, and Allie, that may be, that book may be where you picked it up. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, the, what it inv- very simple, you just put three to five tickets on a, uh, a magnetic clip on the refrigerator, and you identify a problem behavior. With a three-year-old, I wouldn't identify more than two. I'd probably stick with one. And you just uh, make the, uh, communicate the understanding that whenever the behavior occurs, you take a ticket. And the first, um, let's say you give five tickets per day, then the first four tickets are the child's margin of error, and the fifth ticket results in a consequence. Now, having said that, I will add in, you can, if you want, place the child in a 10 to 15 minute period of timeout, which is not too long for a three-year-old, for every ticket lost up until the loss of the last ticket, at which time there is a large consequence that is delivered, as in what Allie has described here, when her three-year-old loses the last ticket, he goes to his room for the remainder of the day, and usually I recommend that the child goes to bed early. Allie, you've done all the right things, um, and uh, what you're experiencing here is... Um, it, it, you know, it's an interesting fact about human beings. Only human beings have, and this certainly applies to children, and your story is an illustration of it, have the ability to deny the power or significance of a consequence in their lives. And so here's what I'm going to say to you. Number one, you're doing the right thing. You're using the consequence that I would probably, without investigating this in any sort of in-depth way, which we, we can't do on a radio show, but you are probably using the consequence that I would have recommended that you use. That is the consequence I recommend probably three out of four times that the child, when he loses his last ticket of the day, he goes to his room for the remainder of the day, goes to bed at least an hour early. Um, you, it sounds like you're enforcing it consistently. And and here's the thing. You can do the right thing, and your son may still continue to do the wrong thing. And how long have you been doing this, Allie? Since January. Wow, that's a long time. And you're mm-hmm. and, and you're not seeing any progress at all? Um no at first, I saw progress. It really bothered him being in his room. And the next day, he would get terrified after the third or fourth happy face was taken away. But it seems I'm not sure if he's just, he, he, I don't know, if he's desensitized now. And, and he'll say to me, instead of following the rule or, or doing what I asked of him, he'll say, you know what? You do it. I'll go to my room for the rest of the day. And he actually will. He'll go to his room, sit on his bed for the rest of the day, as long as he didn't have to do what I asked of him. Okay, well, when he says, I'm curious about this, when he 
uh, and that is a that is the sort of sort of sneaky I, I would call it sneaky rebelliousness that is typical of children. Um, they figure things out very very quickly. They figure out the loopholes. You know, it's and here's the thing: he is willing to spend an entire day in his room in order to be rebellious toward you. That and this is uniquely human, and it's downright biblical. If if you understand my reference, I'm I'm sure that many, if not all, of the listeners out there do. Only human beings are willing to pay a terrible, terrible price in order to simply be rebellious. And this principle kicks in very, very early, kicks in usually during what we call the terrible twos, which lasts from 18 to 36 months under typical circumstances. And it sounds like your son is just a, uh, a paragon example of this principle. Um, when he says, will you do it? I'll just go spend the rest of the day in my room. You pick him up. What is your response at that point? At first, I, I didn't think he could do it, and I would say, all right, fine. And so I would pick them up, and he would sit in his room for the rest of the day and not come out, basically, till the next morning. And, but then I thought, oh, he's getting away with it. So I would say, actually, you're going to pick them all up, and you're going to go to your room for the rest of the day just because you talked back to me and told me to do it. Well, good. That's where I was going next. He, you, okay. you insist that he does whatever you've told him to do, and then you send him to his room for the rest of the day anyway. You're, yeah. In other words, he was rebellious toward you. That's why he's going to his room. Yeah. Is the act of rebellion. The I'm not going to. Correct? Yeah. All right. And that's exactly what I would recommend to you. So you're doing all the right stuff. And he is paying a, a huge price. And by the way, just to uh, uh, console any listeners out there who may uh, be wringing their hands proverbially, figuratively, over the fact that a three-year-old is in his room with nothing to do for an entire day, the next day he comes out of his room and he acts uh, normal, Correct. Yeah, he comes into my bedroom, wakes me up as if nothing happened. Right, he's healthy. He's mentally alert. He's uh, he's not depressed. He doesn't act traumatized or anything like that. And the reason I'm saying this, Allie, is because I think people need to hear that you can lower the boom on a three-year-old, and this is not going to affect the three-year-old's mental health. And I'm not talking about doing something abusive like beating a child or anything like that. But you can use huge consequences with a three-year-old, and they're okay after they suffer those consequences. Um, Allie, do you think that there's anything else you could do to up the ante here? I'd like to. I'd really like to up the ante. My husband has suggested maybe change it from from the rest of the day to to the rest of the day plus the following day, and... No, because then you have, let me interrupt you there, then you have no no handle on the following day, okay? So here, here's what I'm going to recommend. I'm going to recommend, how many, how many tickets does he currently have? He gets still five. Okay, uh, cut him down to three. And uh, that's recommendation number one. Recommendation number two is uh, that every ticket he loses, 
uh, he, he goes to his room for a period of time. So he loses ticket number one. He goes to his room for 30 minutes. He loses ticket number two. He goes to his room for an hour. He loses ticket number three. He goes to his room for the remainder of the day. I have a feeling, and it is based on 40 years of experience, mm -hmm. that if you do that, if you slowly up the ante with every ticket that he loses, that you're going to get a better response out of this. Okay. What do you think? I really hope so. I'm willing to try anything. Well, I tell you what, Allie, if it doesn't work out as well as you hope that it will and as well as I hope that it will, you are welcome to call the show back and we'll talk again about this, okay? Okay, I just have um, actually a question about the ticket method. Okay. Um, so when I, I think I mentioned, when I leave the room, he'll break every rule there is. Now, is it like a training a dog where if you don't catch him in the act, I can't take a ticket away? Leave what room? Like if I leave the room to go take a shower, if I if I leave the the play area to go downstairs and make supper, and he's left alone uh -huh. to his own devices, uh -huh. and he breaks rules he knows he shouldn't break, like uh, hurting the the dog or throwing something down the stairs, anything like that. Can I? Oh yeah, yeah, after the I fact, take sure. Away? Absolutely. After the fact, yes, after the fact. He he's 3 years old. This is a common misconception caused by psychologists. You can delay consequences beginning at the third birthday or thereabouts because long-term memory, what is called academically language-based memory has begun to form. And so when long-term memory begins to form, you can begin delaying consequences. So after the fact is fine, Ellie. It's just fine. By the way, um, we're now talking with a sponsor in Alberta about me coming up there to talk in a town called Grand Prairie. So uh, stay in touch with my website at johnroseman.com for more news about that. Uh, thanks for your call, Allie. Appreciate it. Uh, our number is 404-419-6499. 404-419-6499 for those of you who'd like to join the show which is called Because I Said So when we come back we'll discuss the uh, question what if all the psychologists in the world just suddenly disappeared be right back, hope you stay with us American Family Radio Network, it's Because I Said So. Now once again, here's your host, John Rosemond. Welcome back. Uh, those of you who uh, who know who I am and uh, have maybe been following me, my, uh, my rather odd career uh, know that I am a psychologist. And I say odd career because if you hear it, we're here on the show or listening to the show from the very beginning. You heard that I'm a psychologist who doesn't believe in psychology. And that is absolutely the truth, old truth and nothing but the truth. So I'm sort of an odd duck in my profession. I am licensed by the North Carolina Psychology Board. They regret the day. And this is, it always elicits laughs when I say this in front of an audience. But I guarantee you this is not uh, a joke, although it sounds like one. 
they regret the day they ever gave me a license because uh, I say things like this, that if every psychologist, and, and I mean including myself, were to suddenly disappear from the face of the earth and earthlings simultaneously forgot that there ever was such a profession, such people, I am absolutely certain I mean, absolutely, that the collective quality of life uh, in America and the world would slowly improve. Did you know, for example, that if you see a psychologist, you have just as much of a chance of getting worse as you do better than on average people who see psychologists, I mean a population of people, that um, they do not report on average that, uh, and again, on average being the operative uh, condition, uh, certain people will will report, yeah, I got a lot better. I, I thought he was great. I got some really great advice. And other people will say, no, I thought his advice was awful. I mean, the, and the more I think about it, the more weird I think it was. Um, did you know that talking to a good friend, a friend who's willing to be frank with you uh, and, and, you know, is a compassionate individual will probably be more helpful and certainly less expensive than talking to a psychologist. And, and by the way, these rhetorical questions that I am, I'm asking are not speculative. They reflect the result of research done by psychologists. They are, in effect, psychology's dirty little secret, okay? The, the, the average American, here's the problem, has become persuaded that mental health professionals know what they're talking about. When in many, if not most cases, the opposite is true. Let's just take an uh, example here. Psychotherapist Dr. Lynn Cantley, who has recently written a book entitled Detecting Child Abuse, Recognizing Children at Risk Through Drawings. Okay, Dr. Cantley maintains that one can identify children who've been physically and sexually abused by analyzing their drawings, she contends, by Lynn, I'm assuming it's a female, for example, the drawings that exhibit the following characteristics are red flags that the child may be a victim of physical and or sexual abuse. Now get this, a human figure with a disproportionately large head. I mean, you know, what is that? Drawing an alien, I guess. A geometric box-like body. Now, mind you, these are red flags that the child may be a victim of physical or sexual abuse. Tiny eyes, a stick figure, a large mouth. Uh, I think, perhaps, that the child who draws stick figures with big heads is simply not destined to become an artist. That's all. Or perhaps he is. It occurs to me that some of the items in the above list describe Picasso's human figures and no artist has ever made more money than Picasso, to my knowledge. Cantley's speculations only get more absurd from there. She maintains that a belt drawn wide and low means the child is struggling to maintain control over his or her sex drive. Now, that is just bizarre. I mean, come on. Okay, birds, birds in the picture means the child is fleeing from stress and pressure. Buttons. Oh, if the child puts buttons. I, I don't know whether this includes buttons on drawings of Frosty the Snowman or what. Connote strong dependency needs. How in the world has this person 
arrived at these conclusions. This is mumbo-jumbo. There is not science. There is no well-done research that corroborates any of these conclusions. Uh, this is absurd. And here's the bad part is that she says she's evaluated children for the courts for the last 20 years. It is downright scary to think that judges have been educated to believe that the sort of thing Cantley is doing is scientific, much less that the fate of a person accused of child abuse may hang on such 20th century voodoo. Her book is an example of the worst of bad excesses in my profession, even if the rest of us don't suddenly disappear from the planet. Maybe Cantley might consider moving her practice to someplace like, I don't know, the North Pole. The ice is melting, so on and so forth. Okay, we've got a call now. Caller on the line, uh, Barb from Nebraska and uh, Omaha, in fact, and uh, one of my favorite cities, as a matter of fact. Welcome to the show, Barb. Hi, John. I'm glad to be here. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here in, in this chair and doing this show. And how can I help yeah. you? Yeah, it's fun. Well, here I am. Um, I have a 16-year-old boy. To the outside world, he's amazing. He gets good grades. He's in advanced math classes. He's one of the best musicians in high school, if not the state. Here's my problem. Once he walks in our house, all of that is done. And I, re and I read your books, and when you said turmoil will be worse than late toddler transition, it'll be a major upheaval, never did I know how true those words were going to hit me. So here's this amazing kid out in the world. They think he's amazing. He walks through the door, yes, defiant, yes, disrespectful, yes, disobedient. He can hit marks for the band and the music directors and this and that, but he cannot seem to do basic chores without drama at home. Well, why do you think all that is? I mean, first of all, Barb, I mean, this kid, if you uh, if you kicked him out of the house today, which uh, I'm not sure would be legal in the state of Nebraska, probably right. not, and I'm not suggesting it, but... <laughs> Worst possible scenario, if you kicked him out of the house today, he sounds like he'd do okay. He'd figure things out and, uh, you know, he'd, he'd be alive and thriving and maybe even with a great job in 10 years. Yes. So uh, how, how do you, uh, what, what is your theory about all this? How do you speculate this occurred, this happened? Well, you know, and, and I've been reading your book since he's been two years old, and he's always been um, the child that, you know, when you draw a line in the sand— where my girl would go, oh, my goodness, mom drew that line in the sand. Stop. I could get in trouble. I'm concerned. For him, he has always been, really, let's get the party started. And, and he's always been a little edgy. Um, it, but all this defiant really started when he hit teenage. It was like... Um, I don't get it. We were close. We had, we had, um, boundaries. We, I have had these kids do chores since they've been five years old, if not earlier. Um, we had this wonderful relationship and he, and we still do on some days, but on these other days, he can just be so defiant. 
Um, a lot of it, I think, started because he, he started music very late in life, and he was amazing. So he's got all this reinforcement. Oh, you need to try out for this. Oh, you need to try out for this. Oh, you need to do this. So he's got, and, a, uh, he's got kind of a superstar complex at the age of 16. Eh? He thinks he's really hot stuff. And I think, not so egotistical, but I think he thinks he's hot stuff in the sense that he has been trained at school that band is his life. Music uh-huh. is his life. And he believes it. And so I've had Christian talks with him that says, you have a blessing. This is God's blessing to you. But he's been told from the school that's important. Rehearsals are important. And the way the school treats us is like parents are there to jump for the school and give money and give time. Well, this is the way schools are all over yes. the country, public schools, yes. private schools. It doesn't matter. The, you know, yes. the, the parent is the gopher. You know, the parent is yes. expected to do this, do that. The fact is, I, I think schools have uh, these days more expectations of parents than they do of students. But, Barb, let me, uh, let me just kind of cut to the chase here. I mean, um, he's a good kid uh, outside the home. Outside the home, he's a high achiever. He impresses people. People love him. He's well-behaved. He's respectful. Nobody complains about him outside the home. And like I said before, I mean, if, if speculating, you were able to do so legally, you kicked him out of the house, he'd figure out how to survive. Um, yeah. And this stuff didn't start until he was a teenager. He might have been a little bit edgy, you said. He might have been a little mm-hmm. bit uh, surly at times, you know, when given instructions. But it really sounds to me like you have done a very, very good job of raising this child. One point I have to make is this, that uh, proper childering does not guarantee a good outcome. And, uh, you know, what you're experiencing here illustrates the truth of that maxim, that You did a good job, chores, all the right stuff, Christian household, good values, et cetera, et cetera, obviously. And he is just, uh, uh, you know, an in-your-face kid at the age of 16 where you and your husband are concerned. In in part, I think that this is... um, you know, I used uh, earlier in the program the term zeitgeist, which the Germans use to simply describe this what they call or what is called what would be called the spirit of the times. And and I think that this is the teenage zeitgeist today, that they just think, well, a cool teenager doesn't obey his parents and talks back to his parents and is surly around his parents and screams at his parents and curses at his parents or whatever they think cool teenagers do. And so this is the way they behave. Barb, we're right up against a hard break. Can you stay on the line? Because I'd like to talk to you some more. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. We're going to go to a hard break. This is John Roseman, and we're talking to Barb, and we're going to continue this conversation when we come back. Uh, Our number is 404-419-6499. The show is called Because I Said So. We deal with parenting matters. We're on American Family Radio. Back in a moment. Stay with us.
Welcome back to the show. I'm John Roseman, and the show is called Because I Said So. If uh, you understand this is a parenting program, then you understand where the show title comes from, Because I Said So. We've got uh, Barb on the line from Omaha, Nebraska. And Barb, I'm going to fill in a few uh, spaces here for the people who may have just joined us. Barb's 16-year-old boy, great student, musician, uh, people love him outside the home, teachers love him, uh, uh, music instructors love him, everybody loves him. But at home, he is a proverbial pill. He is a pill. He throws tantrums, he's disrespectful, he's disobedient, and so on and so forth. I get that right, Barb? Point blank. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, you know, what we were talking about is the fact that, and, and I use the term zeitgeist again in the program, this this word that the, and I love the word. I mean, it's just a great word. The Germans use it to uh, refer to the spirit of the time. So I was saying that, you know, this is sort of the the zeitgeist of today's teenagers. They They think that, you know, being polite to your parents and being obedient and addressing them as yes, ma'am and no, ma'am and yes, sir and no, sir, that that's just not cool. That um, being cool is being disrespectful and disobedient and uh, snarky and sarcastic and uh, yelling at them and so on and so on and so forth. And you know, the, the two points that I was making here. One is he's going to do okay. I mean, obviously, he's figured out how to move very fluidly in social circles and how to impress people. And I'm not suggesting that he's doing this manipulatively or disingenuously. It doesn't sound like he is. But, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, he, he's he's got all that figured out. Um, he's not going to go to his first job after finishing college and treat his boss the way he's treating you. Um, right. he, he's not going to lose three jobs and be home living with you playing video games when he's 30 years old. And, and by the way, I've heard these stories. Your, your son is not uh, uh, on that path. Um, let, let's move into um, to the second part of this, which is, um, it, it certainly is not appropriate. And what are you willing to do? How far are you willing to go to put the hammer down on this kid and let him know uh, in no uncertain terms this won't be tolerated and it's not going to happen again? What are you willing to do? Okay, and this is why I called because I will tell you, I just made more dramatic steps. And, and I am known as a tough mom, according to him, but the reality is, I don't think he knows tough yet, because I think I can get much tougher. But this is what I did. Um, when he's rude to me in public, like, and he's not, he doesn't yell at me or anything like that. But I pretty much had, that happened with a serious talk. I said, that will never happen again. I will never be humiliated. You will acknowledge me in public and smile. And believe it or not, he could tell how hurt I was that he snapped out of that. And so he acknowledges me in public and is nice to me. Let let me interrupt real quickly. What this means is, and and this is important, he's not a sociopath, okay? He is tuned into other people's feelings, specifically in this case yours. Sociopaths, pre-sociopathic teenagers are not. They don't care how other people feel or respond 
emotionally to their behavior. It doesn't matter to them. It's the other person's fault and not theirs. So good news, your son is not a pre-sociopathic teenager. And believe me, Barb, there are increasing numbers of teenagers out there whose parents describe them this way. So good news. Go ahead. You know what? And I, I hold on to anything I can get because at some point he does act like a sociopath. I want to say, where is this child I raised? But every, but every so often he gives me this glimpse of, oh, my goodness, I have not lost that core child yet. So he is actually, even when he's super hurt my feelings, actually have come up and hugged me in public, which I think the heavens are opening at that moment. <laughs> Pre-sociopathic <laughs> teenagers don't do that. So you've got nothing to worry about in that regard. He may act at times like a sociopath. Yes. He is not a sociopath. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Now, here's the what I just did. I actually um, go to your website, and he is in a, an elite music group uh, at the university. He tried out. He made it, and it was like, Amazing. It's a huge deal, but it's an elite music group. So I told him this summer, after just drama, I said, This is it. His dad and I told him, This is it. You have X number of weeks before school starts. If you do not do your chores and start showing us respect on a daily basis, you're out of that elite music group. Okay. Well, what I would do, I think that's great. I really and truly do. I think that's that's a huge step in the right direction. And um, another thing about today's teenagers is they don't understand or respond to small consequences. So you've got to do huge things if you want to make an impression on a teenager today. Huge stuff. And I think that uh, given all that you've told me about your son, this is probably huge enough. I don't think he connects the dots yet because he's in band camp right now as we speak at high school uh-huh. so he's he's getting the drug he needs and i think at some crazy level he thinks i'm kidding okay well let, <laughs> then let's do this this way and and here's what i'm going to recommend you put up a chart on the refrigerator and it's got five blocks on it. it's just five blocks that's all it is they're they're arranged in in a row And um, you tell him that on any day that he acts disrespectfully, dismissively, rudely toward you or your husband, that an X will go into one of those boxes. And that if those boxes, all five of them, are full before his elite music experience begins at the university... He is not participating in said elite musical experience. And uh, I think that, Barb, if he believes you that this is going to straighten him up, but what I would throw into the mix is simply the the very concrete, uh, you know, here's how many, this is your margin of error. Between now and the time your elite musical experience group begins, uh, your margin of error is four incidents of disrespect, dismissiveness, rudeness, et cetera, et cetera. The fifth 
and you are not participating in this group. It is not a requirement for your success in life, and believe me, your father and I are ready to do this in order to demonstrate to you that we mean business. Okay. So that is the only thing I would throw in there. What you've said is, if you don't begin showing us respect, and I think you just need to say, this is the number of disrespectful uh, mistakes we are going to allow you, this being four, the fifth, and the game is over. How does that sound to you? You know what? That sounds perfect because I'm in a power position to do it. I, it was hard for me to take him out last year when he was already in it because so many other people depending are depending on him. on him. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. But, but now I'm at the beginning of the game and I'll just be upping it if, if, if he loses that and he continues, I'll just have to find something else, but... Just call us back if... Uh, oh, okay. We're, we're more than willing to, to take your call. Hey, and I have to tell you one last thing. Okay, got to be quick. came to Omaha, Nebraska. I met you, and I have never done this to a rock star in my life. I went up to you, and I said, Oh, John Roseman, I love you. <laughs> and I think you had fear in your eyes for a brief moment. But <laughs> I... <laughs> You knocked me off balance. I, You know, Barb, I seem to remember that. I really and truly do. I went home to my husband and said, I love John Roseman. Oh, well, you're a sweetheart. Barb, you've made my day. You've made my day. Well, listen, thanks for calling. Enjoyed Thank talking you. to you. And I hope that the advice will be helpful. If not, like I said, just call us back. We're out of time. But before I leave... I want to tell you about my brand new book that's arriving from the publisher even as we speak. It's called Grandma Was Right After All, Parenting Wisdom from the Good Old Days. Uh, I guarantee you if you, uh, if you read it, you'll enjoy it and you will learn from it. You know, today's parents are almost completely disconnected from the wisdom of their grandparents and their great-grandparents. The common sense, intuitive wisdom from the heart that uh, guides good parenting. And uh, the reason this has occurred is because of the psychological parenting revolution that occurred in the 1960s that caused us as a culture to take a process that occurs naturally from the heart and push it up into the head. And at the behest of psychologists and other mental health professionals, begin thinking too much about children and how to raise them properly and in the process of thinking and reading and thinking and reading, we, we, we collect all this psychobabble in our heads that drowns out the calming voice of common sense uh, from the heart. In the book, I talk about uh, some of the old-time parenting sayings. Children should be seen and not heard. You're acting too big for your britches. You made this bed. You're going to lie in it. Uh, every child has a mind of his own. And explain what those things really meant and why they are still relevant. What I'm trying to do is resurrect that old parenting language uh, through the book. Grandma was right after all. Parenting wisdom from the good old days. It's from Tyndale, and it'll be on the shelves. If it's not already, it'll be on the shelves very, very soon. Our producer on Because I Said So is the inimitable Rich Rosal with assistance from Lisa Wysakowski, who is my managing agent. Our calls were handled by Thomas Rosal, and uh, I'm John Roseman, psychologist, syndicated columnist, author, public speaker. Thanks for listening, and be sure to join us again next weekend. Why? 
Because I said so. From Creative Genius Productions and American Family Radio Network.